Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Elisha and Naaman in 2 Kings 5, 1-15. The story focuses on the Aramean general Naaman, who is successful in battle, but hindered by a case of leprosy that no one can cure. When an Israelite girl tells Naaman to visit the prophet Elisha in Israel, it sets in motion a drama animated by the peculiar expectations of people in power about how the world should work. Proper chains of authority, proper expressions of hospitality, and proper rituals of healing. Naaman is offended when Elisha doesn't come to the door to see him, and even more upset that Elisha should tell him to bathe in the River Jordan. We talk about the ways our expectations of how things should be can hinder our ability to experience the miraculous, how people outside of positions of power are often the ones who can see most clearly, and the possibility that God's healing power is already in the world, not requiring someone to mediate it with a wave of the hand, but only someone who can recognize God's work and point others in the right direction. Thanks for joining us. Amy, it's Bible Worm time again. It is that time again. It comes every week. Every week. It does. It's so delightful to see you. It's delightful to see you too. Anything happening in your world that we want to talk about? Um, here's what's happening in my world. My daughter wants to try out for the high school musical, which is Fiddler on the Roof. And so this is an outstanding opportunity for me to force the entire family to watch the three-hour version (laughs) of the Fiddler on the Roof movie, a project which we started this week, but will take us a long time. (laughs) (laughs) How long can you sustain it before people start to fade out? Uh, Right now, right? I mean, right now people are into it. We'll see. I don't know. Three hours is really long. Yeah. It's a really long movie, but... um, I can dance. I can really dance very much like Tevia, which is entertaining to my family. Oh, nice. So, so you just like act it out while it's going on? You just so, the yeah, whole, that yeah. does happen. I've seen that like a it. lot of times. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm currently watching uh, Better Call Saul. And I am. I made it to the last season. I'm in season like, six, I guess. But I've been watching the first episode for like a week and a half. And I only, I watch it right before I go to bed and I keep falling asleep. And then I can't remember what happens. I have to wake up and the next day, then I start it over. And so I just keep, I've been on the same episode for a week. I'm very tired a lot of the time. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) You have small people in your house. I do. I do. They're delightful. Maybe they would like to see me dance like Tevya. Maybe oh, that, I that could would teach terrific. them to dance like Tevia. Oh, that would be not even your better. Littlest. I don't know. Littlest, little young. Probably. Yeah. My daughter is very much into dancing, though. Great. Yeah. This is going to be amazing. It'll be amazing. Okay, good. We have a plan for we what. Do. Let's talk about the Bible, and then I will drive to Arkansas and dance <laughs> like Tevia with your child. I love it. Yeah, well, let's do Great. it. All right. 
Today, we are in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, and we are in the story of the prophet Elisha and a Syrian general who I'm going to call Naaman because I mm. speak Southern <laughs> or Protestant. <laughs> I don't know what I'm speaking exactly. Maybe I'm speaking Protestant. Okay, good. You're going to say... I'm going to say Naaman. Naaman, which is the correct way to say that. And I am capable of saying Naaman, but I know that I'm going to say Naaman, which is sort of like. So you just call, let's call a spade a spade. This is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. Is, yeah, I could concentrate yeah. and say Naaman, but sometime or another, I'm going to lose my concentration. I'm going to say Naaman. It's like a, it's like a horse person. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name, what? horse person? Nay, man. Oh my God. I was like, I don't know. I had to work a long, I had to work a long to, way around to get to that very had, yeah, mediocre to get joke. To the horse man. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Yes. Let's read. A, let's read about this horse man. <laughs> Not a man. Okay, uh, Amy. Last time we were in First Kings chapter three, where we were talking about Solomon and his wise judgment between two women. Now we are in 2 Kings chapter 5. I don't know. I don't know if we need to know anything more to get to this text or not, but what would you say about what we need to transition from last week to this week? You know, the piece of background information that I want to offer is not actually like a plot continuity piece of information. It's about the different kinds of prophets. Oh, yeah. Like categories of prophets that we believe to have existed based on the biblical text. Yeah. Because we read before in a previous story, the prophet Nathan, yeah. who who speaks to David. Nathan is an example of a prophet who functions within the palace system. Like right. he is invited into the home of the king and speaks to the king and can rebuke the king and the king takes it seriously. Yeah. That's that's one sort of category of yeah. what the Bible calls prophecy or prophet, profiting, profiteering. No, that's not the right word. <laughs> Being a prophet. Yeah. Isaiah is kind of in that category. Like we haven't Isaiah, gotten to Isaiah yes, yet. But yes, he's, Isaiah is in that category too. Yeah, sort of on the king's sort payroll of, almost. Yeah. Yes, he's he's an insider. Mm-hmm. And then there are prophets who are very critical of the government, who are sort of outsiders to right. that system. I don't think we've read any of those this year. Who would we put in that category? Uh, I would put Amos in that category. I was going to say Micah. Amos, like Micah. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. In this chapter, we get another kind of prophet that feels really different mm. to me. This is, I think this is what our old professor David Peterson would call a man of God. Yes. These dudes have like powers. Right. It's not that they're giving you wisdom or rebuke or conveying a message or, you know, like Ezekiel does all this crazy stuff to try to get people's attention, but really he's just trying to convey a message from God in in the best and most attention getting way that he can. Elijah and Elisha seem to have like, I mean, I hate to say the word magical powers, but it seems kind of like magical powers. (laughs) Like they can, they can heal people. They can make bears attack children. Axe heads float. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they can do stuff. 
and we're we're gonna see healing in this chapter. I'm not really sure what else to say about these categories of prophecy other than just that the the text uses that word or that I don't know label to cover actually a lot of different roles that people had in society. That's really helpful, Amy. And, you know, I think it is probably true that Elijah and Elisha both also have some sort of prophetic role in the more traditional sense as uh, peripheral prophets who criticize Mm. the king. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is really important that these guys have the power to actually do things in the world to affect changes, to to work miracles is really what they're doing. Yeah, yes, yes. And that seems to be part of what they are doing as prophets. And not all prophets are able to do that. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are plot points that we sort of need to to pick up where we are in this story? I mean, the only thing that occurs to me is just after Solomon's reign, the kingdom splits north and south. And so Mm -hmm. we've got a king of Israel uh, in the north who is located in Samaria, which is where this text takes place. And then we've got a Mm -hmm. king of Judah in the south, located in Jerusalem. That The Mm -hmm. southern kingdom, as you well know, is the lineage of David that follows in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is not Davidic. And Elijah and Elisha are both prophets in the northern kingdom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I mean, we could get into the specifics of sort of what kings and where and what have you, but I don't think it actually matters in particular yeah. in yep. this text. No, I think I think that's right. That's really helpful just to know this is a for people who track these things, this is this is part of the northern northern traditions. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's dive in and see where this takes us. Alrighty. Okay, so I'm gonna pick up with Second Kings chapter five, verses one through six, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Naaman, a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly regarded by his master, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. This man was a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Then Aram's king said, Go ahead, I will send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along ten kikars of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. He brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, Along with this letter I am sending you my servant Naaman, so you can cure him of his skin disease. All right, Amy, so we're introduced to... This character, Naaman, who is a general in the army of the king of Aram. What? Where is Aram? What's going What is that about? <laughs> well, I know this because I think you said it before. In my, I will tell you, in my mind, this registered primarily as not Israel. Right. <laughs> like yeah. we're talking about a commander of an army. Yeah. That is not Israel, neither the north nor the south, who it says that the Lord has granted victory yeah. to them. So like the Lord God of Israel, you know, the Lord Lord is involved in this story of this other nation, which yeah. which is interesting to me. I think you said it was Syria. You say it was Syria. Oh, did I say that already? Yeah. I, well, you yeah. kind of threw it away. Yeah. Like it's a little side comment. And I was like, oh, is that what Aram is? I didn't really think about that. Yeah. 
So that's what it is. Yeah. Ar- okay, good. Aram or Aram, that is what we would feet of Bobby Williamson. today call Syria. Yeah. But what you're saying about it is what's crucial. And both of those points are important. That So this is, you know, just to the north and to the east of Israel. And so this is sort of a traditional foe of the Israelites. They're often coming into conflict over border disputes and things such as that. And here it is said that this general, who is a general of the king of Aram, has been given victory by the Lord, that is, by the God of Israel. And so here we have some kind of universalizing sense of the Lord's rulership or something like that. Like it's it's God. Yeah, and the Lord's like investment in what's going on in these other battles and sometimes yeah. determining that other peoples should. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about what we should do with that? I mean, I think for me, it it just is a, maybe I shouldn't say a reminder quite, but at least it's, you know, we talked maybe last week or a couple weeks ago about the fact that the biblical text might say in some places or seem to indicate some kind of universally understood you know, tenets of what God's relationship to humanity is. But in other places, that is clearly not held to be true. Right. So I feel like reading some other parts of the Tanakh, you really would think that God is mostly interested in what's happening in Israel and in bringing victory to the people of Israel and assuring the well-being of Israel. And there's just not a lot of consideration of what God is doing in relationship to other peoples. And so this is a really nice sort of corrective to that I don't that I don't know narrow perspective that that perspective that God's only interested in that one thing even if those are most of the stories that are captured in the Tanakh yeah that that God is also active in this other sphere yeah I mean I think that's exactly right and it reminds me a little bit of all the way back our maybe our first conversation of this year when we were when we were talking about Genesis 12 and we were talking about how God chooses Abraham in order to bless the whole world. And so mm. the God who is sort of specifically committed to Israel is yet the God of the world and is in relationship with Israel as a way of being in relationship with the rest of the world. And to me, one can read this text similarly, that mm-hmm. God is, I mean, God is still the God of Israel and God is particularly connected to the land of Israel. And yet God is still functional outside of Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a monotheist, like, you've got to think that God it is It has active. to be that way. No, you're right. You're right. It's just it's just a different lens to think about God's activity in the world yeah. than what we get in a lot of other texts. I think that's right. And especially, I mean, so in verse 2, you find out that Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. And so, mm-hmm. like, not only is God sort of with the king of Aram and this general Naaman. Ooh, I said Naaman. Look at that. You're, Look at that. You're turning me into a Hebrew scholar. Uh, uh, but actually is giving them victories over the people of Israel. So like the, the, the mm-hmm. God is actually sort of on the side of the traditional enemy here. Not on the mm-hmm. side of, but giving victory to. Mm-hmm. It does complicate the notion of God is on our side versus God mm-hmm. is on their side. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. Now, the text tells us that he had a skin disease. Sometimes that's translated as leprosy. Sometimes it's translated, Robert Alter translates it as a skin blanch, which I think, (laughs) I'm not quite sure what it means exactly, but his point is that it means that Naaman's 
skin is sort of white, sort of bleached out, but it's not what we today might call leprosy. Do you have any insight about? I mean, the Hebrew word is mitzorah, which is what, you know, there's, there's a whole discussion in Leviticus about what to do when someone has this. Yeah. Skin condition that has been translated as leprosy for a long, long time. There's a long tradition of calling it leprosy and, and also a more recent and uh, accurate <laughs> tradition of not calling it leprosy because it's not what we mean by leprosy. Yeah. But it is some kind of skin disease that at least as far as we can tell from Levit- reading Leviticus, it seems to have the potential of contagion. There's concern about contagion. Mm-hmm. Within the laws of Israel, like I know this guy is not within Israel, so I don't know what traditions would have been operative for him. But if someone has an active case of this mitzorah, they have to stay outside the camp. Like they have to stay away from the community, presumably because there is a fear of contagion. But he doesn't seem to be staying outside of the community because he's a commander of the army. Right. Now, I was trying to think about that, whether this text is not interested in the purity issues around Metzorah or whether it's because he's Syrian and not Israelite that the purity concerns don't apply to him exactly. But he's like traipsing around, you know, Samaria a little bit, showing up at the king's house and he's going to show up at the prophet's house. Yeah. So, or if it's not a very serious case of it that he's got, how do you read the purity issues? Do you, just doesn't really play into this text. It doesn't play into this text. And if my, if my translation had read skin disease instead of leprosy, then I maybe wouldn't have gone back to the Hebrew to, to get this sort of like word that feels really loaded coming from that context of Leviticus. But again, like, I feel like a broken record on this. Just because there's a law about it in Leviticus doesn't mean everyone knew and followed yeah. that law, even in Israel. Yeah, that's true. But this guy does not seem to have any of the the sort of isolating social implications going on in his life. He has great stature in the community as the leader of the military. He has audience with his king and then goes to Samaria and has audience with another king. You know, he... He does not seem constrained by this. It's more like, uh, it, I don't know. It, I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but it, yeah. it's not holding him back. That was going to be my next question is, I mean, c- clearly this is a concern because the text points it out and then we're going to yes. spend the rest of the text trying to heal the skin disease. Yes. So it's not that it's nothing. Yes. But at the same time, it doesn't have all the social implications that we would expect based on other texts where we read about leprosy, mitzrah. And yeah. so- I'm just trying to sort of like, I don't know quite what's at stake for Naaman in having, is it just a social stigma? Is it, is it an annoyance? Is it some sort of thing that would have held him back if he were not such an amazing general? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to hold this story in comparison, like hold it alongside the other teachings we have about how this skin disease is operative, like socially, because it just doesn't follow those rules. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think the closest that I can get to how to make sense of it is just something like uh, Naaman is a very impressive fellow. He has this one way in which he is not a whole, or at least Mm -hmm. considered by the text, to not be a whole Mm -hmm. human being. He's sort of 
uh, has this affliction, which Mm -hmm. is disrupting his life in some way or another. And so that, that seems to be the concern is that he be restored to the wholeness or fullness or completeness. I don't quite know what word to use there, but mm-hmm. uh, so it is, the text seems to have some, there's a little bit of pitying him or something like that. People who see him are like, oh, I wish you could go. I mean, the slave girl says, oh, I wish that you could go and see the prophet because he could make that better. And so it's clear that people who encounter Naaman notice and, and wish something could be done. And so there's this sort of issue, but it doesn't seem to be a debilitating or ostracizing mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's so it's this Israelite slave girl who makes the connection between Elisha and Naaman. She sees Naaman. Uh, she's, she refers to him to her, to, to Naaman's wife, refers to him as my master and says, I wish... He could come to the prophet who lives in Samaria who would cure him of his skin disease. I find this girl's just, I just think her character is so interesting. Like that's all she does in the story, mm-hmm. but it's a really important thing that she does in the story. I'm just, I mean, I don't know. I expected her to having, like she was stolen in a military raid. You would expect yeah. her to not, to not really. really be rooting for her master yeah. particularly. How do you how do you read this this girl? What do you make of her? That's such an interesting question, Bobby, because I how I read her is this almost sort of like weird to me, I don't I don't know what adjective to use. I want to use I don't I don't know what adjective to use. This portrayal of someone who has been taken captive and is totally content in their new life. Yeah. <laughs> and is just like, okay, I understand my role in this household and society now and I'm pulling for everybody just like you know why not keep it positive we all help each other out even though now I'm a captive and you're my master yeah which is pretty a pretty distressing portrayal to put out into the world as like this is how this is how it ought to be when someone is is taken captive and made to be a servant but she that's I mean it would be like saying his niece was over at the house and said this, you know, like someone who's sort of a, not quite part of the family, but immediately adjacent to the family and perfectly happy to be there. It just doesn't have any of that, any of the baggage of how she got there. One of the things that I noticed throughout this text is there is sort of a, a breaking down of traditional animosities or something like Hmm. people who ought to be enemies in this text seem not to function like enemies. Aram and Israel seem to be in some kind of a military conflict, and yet she wants to help him. Elisha wants to, is going to want to help him later. There's just something about these sort of traditional sources of anger or hostility or something are just not functional in this text. I don't quite know what to make of it either, but I do think it's interesting that instead of being embittered or angry, everyone in this text seems to kind of want to help each other out. Yeah. I hadn't noticed that, and I really like it. And I want to, I'm going to hold on to it as we keep reading and want to plant sort of alongside that. You know, I I see as we move through this text, some, I don't know if tension or maybe just sort of like two parallel understandings of the world, one of which is really oriented towards 
authority structures yes. and who who has traditional power. Yeah. And then most of the actual useful stuff right. comes not from there. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. And so this is the first example of that where yeah. it's this, you know, captive girl who's a servant yeah. who has a suggestion for how to change this thing in his life that we don't know exactly how it's holding him back, but it definitely is something he wants to change. Yeah. That's so interesting the way you're framing that. I, I, I frame it somewhat similarly for myself, but immediately what Naaman does in verse four is he takes this thing that has come to him from this unofficial channel and he channels it straight into yep. the official channels. Like, oh, yep. I, I, let me go tell the king. Yes, the highest of the official channels, yeah, right? Like we're going it. straight to the top. Yep. Yeah. So now he's channeled it into like, okay, here's how, here's how generals and kings deal with each other. And so we end up with this sort of retinue heading from Aram to the king of Israel with this letter about, hey, you need to cure my, cure my servant's skin disease. Right. It goes up to the king and then it goes parallel from king to king. Right. When this is like definitely not what the servant girl said was supposed to happen. Right. <laughs> but they're going to try it. They're going to take this back up through the, the authority structure they know. See how it goes. And they send it with an enormous amount of money. 10 key cars of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. I, that is, I forget exactly what that calculate, calculates out to, but it's some, some incredible amount of money. And so it is, it is not just that we're going to send it through official channels, but also we're going to pay a lot of money to make sure that this thing right. can happen in the official way that it's meant, that it's meant to happen. Yes, all all of the avenues that they know to make something happen, they are exercising. Yeah, authority and money. Yep. Yep. That would be those. And 10 changes of clothing. That is a lot of yeah. clothing. I don't bring 10 <laughs> changes don't? of clothing on trips. <laughs> no, you'd wa- if you need more than five, you should wash your clothes. I don't even have 10 sets of clothing. I had this really funny experience the other day where I've got this pair of jeans. I'm actually wearing them right now uh, that I wore like every day for the whole pandemic. And they were sort of, Every day that I like wasn't wearing shorts, I guess, or wearing pajamas, but I wore them. I've worn them a lot, a lot. And I've been wearing them sort of out in the world and whatever. And then last week I got them out of my closet and I was like, oh my God, are those the (laughs) jeans I've been wearing? Like they're like worn through. (laughs) They've got like a whole, like kind of in a slightly like, you know, like inappropriate place. And like, so like, yeah, I don't even have 10 changes of clothes in my whole closet. Probably not (laughs) not just when I'm on a trip. I just think that I don't know if that is a detail that's somehow related to his skin affliction because there's a lot of like changing of clothes when you have this skin disease, but I don't, I think maybe it's a random detail. Oh, I, I read it as they're going to send like, 10 changes of clothes to the king because the king is kind of a clothes hound and like. Oh, not like they're going to pack many suitcases for their long what, trip. Yeah, that's I guess you I could read it that way or like you're going to. Yeah, you want to look fresh and clean when you get there. I read it as like they're trying to butter up the king, and so they're giving him, king likes to look fancy, so they're going to give him fancy clothes. A million dollars and ten <laughs> Exactly. But super nice jeans. Yeah. Nice. The, the nicest really jeans nice you can buy. Jeans. Like Jordash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have just aged yourself. I was never cool enough Jordash. to have Jordash jeans. You could probably get a pair now. I still want, when I was in middle school, I like desperately, desperately wanted a real pair of Keds. Oh, yeah, I do. Remember Keds that had the little blue label on the back, but 
my parents would not get me a pair of Keds because they were like, you don't need to pay $20 yeah. for a pair of tennis shoes when you can get them for $6 at Sears and Roebuck. So for like months, I've been like, Amy, you're a grown woman. You can go buy <laughs> Keds now. And like they have them in the stores, but I can't make yeah. myself do it. Every time I go, I'm like, I just can't yeah. spend that money. But I want the Keds, Bobby. Okay, I've done, I've Everyone's like, I, every once in a while I have new insight into kids. you that also explains why you and I like each other so much. Because I was also the kid who was like never cool enough. Like when I was in like sixth grade or whatever, like members only jackets were cool, but I couldn't have a members only jacket. So I got like the Sears brand one, which, <laughs> which is like the Fox yeah. brand or something. And I was like, look at, and I like, I just, you know, like <laughs> we now I look back at best. those things and I'm like, those, like, like, all those things were really dumb trends, but I felt very sad that I couldn't participate in the dumb trends of my day. Yeah, I know. We'll have a party sometime where we, we wear all the trends when we were <laughs> yeah. in middle school. Oh, that would be amazing. We're like, yeah. <laughs> Kids and members only jackets. That would be amazing. It'd be yeah. great. So that's what they brought to the king. A million dollars. And a members, only, and members jacket. only jacket. Yeah. Great. All right. So anything else that we should say about this part of the text? I think we have said, I think we've said everything there is to say. I just, it's so striking to me that like, how far this gets from what the, the Israelite oh, yeah. girl tells them what to do and how yeah. quickly that it's now the king is asking the other king to cure him. Like no one ever said the king could cure him. Like we, it's just such a, it's a, such a big assumption about how power works and that things can only get done through yeah. these avenues of power. Cause all in the world she said was, I wish my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. Like that would take care of it. And we're, mm-hmm. We have gotten into a whole other. We've gotten to a whole other, a whole other complicated things that do not need to be complicated. That's right. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast, and I want to tell you about Bible Worm's video Bible studies, available to Patreon subscribers at the Bible Study Worm level or higher. Each week, I produce a video of about twenty-five minutes or so, discussing the week's narrative lectionary text and offering five discussion questions related to the text. Subscribers can use the videos for your own personal use or show them to your Bible study group or Sunday school class. It's basically like having me lead your group every week. You also receive early access to episodes, membership in the Bible Room Collaborative, and a nifty Bible Room sticker that will make you the envy of your friends and family. All for just $21 a month. See patreon.com slash podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. So to complicate things even further, we'll pick up in verse 7. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes. He said, what? Am I God to hand out death and life? But this king writes me asking me to cure someone of his skin disease. You must realize that he wants to start a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. I just think this king, the king of Israel's response is so funny. Is that supposed to be funny? <laughs> <laughs> he needed his I 10 mean, changes of clothes because he ripped the ones he had on. He, he needs, yeah, you're right. Now he gets to put on his new clothes. For me, it just is, I don't know, maybe I should try to read it as funny. It, strike, it, it struck me as like something else about yeah. power. Like once you have a certain stature, you are so easily embarrassed uh, yeah. if you cannot yeah. do something that you're asked to do 
that you start like lashing out. And it's, it's strange to me that the king assumes this is some kind of pretext to start yeah. a fight. Yeah, this has just gone way off the rails. Gone way off the rails. And that the king, it seems, does not know that Elisha can do this. It's not clear to me. Yeah, it, the, Elisha seems to be nowhere on the king's radar. Unless he's so caught up in his own like mishigas about what he can, you know, like what he can and can't do and what this other king meant or didn't mean that he's not even yeah. thinking about how else can I solve this problem yeah. besides healing him myself. But yeah, he doesn't, it doesn't cross his mind that he has a prophet. I mean, one of the it. things that's interesting to keep track of along these lines is what, what the girl had said was, I wish you could come to the prophet. And then what the... Mm-hmm letter from the king of Aram actually says is I'm sending you my servant so you can cure him of the skin disease. That's right. The idea of the prophet yep. has completely gotten lost in the transmission to the official totally channel. Gone. And yep. then when the king of Israel reads yep. it, he just reads, you need to heal him. There's no mention of the prophet. It doesn't occur to him that there's a prophet. Yep. And so the, 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 the single most important bit of information that the girl had communicated is completely yes. lost in the process. Yep, yep. I'm so curious about the king. I mean, I guess he's apparently been getting attacked here and there anyway because there was that raid where the slave girl was taken. And so, I mean, maybe it's reasonable that he's thinking that this is all some sort of precursor to a fight. But it seems weird to me that you would send a whole bunch of money and clothes to a king as a way of picking a fight with them. He just seems irrational to me. I mean, I guess I don't know how these things worked at that time, like if you really needed a pretext or not. Yeah, it's it seems pretty seems pretty strange to me. I also think there's a lot of chutzpah here for Naaman, who has been leading raiding parties against Israel to now come to Israel and say, Hey, I need this, I need this thing from you. Can you can you do it for me? Maybe that's why there's so much sort of extravagant wealth that's there. Yeah, that could be. You know, I think this might be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway in case someone else has it (laughs) in addition to me. I know that the text says that um, Aram has had military victories delivered by the Lord and and that they carried off this young girl from the land of Israel. But I, I hadn't, I guess, in my mind gone all the way to the military victories we're talking about were... Aram over Israel. Do you think that's what, do I need to go all the way there? No, I mean, that's a good point, Amy. And so I think what the way that I'm thinking about it is not necessarily that the victories of Aram are only against Israel. Like I, I, my reading of it is it's sort of Naaman has been sort of a successful general in all of the ways that one needs to be successful. But in my mind, this raiding party suggest that there has been hostility between Aram and Israel. And so I, in my mind, yes, some of the hostility has been directed toward Israel, but Mm -hmm. that it's not just sort of an ongoing singular conflict between Aram and Israel. Mm -hmm. There's just sort of fighting that happens. Mm -hmm. Some of it is against Israel. Yeah. Is that how you read it? No, that makes sense. It it, did make sense. I, I, I think part of what I'm wondering is the fact that this girl was carried off in a raid. Like if 
if the sovereignty of Israel is not really impacted, would the king even no be overly yeah. aware that this was happening? And I I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to push that too far, but but you're right. It is an awfully chutzpahdick thing to come and say, okay, now unless it's just unless it really is sort of a again a bizarre power play. Like we are the more powerful army. I recognize this is awkward. We're going to throw some money on the table and I want you to make this happen. But that, yes, that does make it a very awkward interaction. I'm kind of taken with your sort of where you're headed. And I, you know, because I mean, I think that the text suggests that there's kind of the ongoing possibility of conflict between these two groups. I was thinking back to that text we read a couple of weeks ago where it said it was the spring and the time when kings go off to war Mm. and David stayed at home. Mm -hmm. And so there does seem like there is also just this sense of like, war is always a thing that a king might do. You know, the weather's good. Let's (laughs) go out and kill each other. So maybe what's (laughs) happening is you're living in a a constant state of the possibility of violence. And so you're always on edge about it. And there are some kind of Mm. skirmishy kinds of things that go on around the edges. But mostly the king doesn't care because they don't affect him. And so it's affecting people like the slave girl but it hasn't actually affected the king himself. But now here's the general come to stand before you. And so now it's suddenly the threat is kind of right in your face. I don't know that that changes too much, but I I think I like it better to say that there is the threat of violence that is kind of always there than to say there has been sort of an ongoing conflict. Because I I think you're right that it's not as clear in the text that that's the case. But I think that all of that informs in a really interesting way this interaction with the king that it's not just it's not just two neighbors where someone's coming to ask for this random thing that you're not able to do there's some some fear or insecurity from the get-go so maybe the fact that the king is king of israel is paranoid yeah it's not so crazy what his response is is what am i god to hand out death and life that's just seems like a very important response and one that has sort of a confessional element to it or a acknowledgement of the power of God to it. What, why do you think the King says that in particular? I guess it struck me as a sort of the nature of the request. The nature of the request was so far beyond the bounds of what this King saw as the power that, any human being could have, you know, the King of Israel recognizes that he is among the most powerful humans. And this request is so insane that, you know, he comes back with this. Am I God? I hadn't really thought about the confessional quality of that statement. Have you thought, have you cooked that idea a little more? Have you thought about it? I'm not sure that, I don't, I'm not sure that the king means to confess anything here, but it it comes because it's going to turn out, spoiler alert, that there is somebody who can heal Naaman. Mm. And so like that's it's going to make it doubly clear that Elisha is enacting God's power because the king has said this. So I think exactly what you've said, like I'm the most powerful man around in Israel. There's no way I could do this. Like this is such a crazy ask. It must be trying to get me to bait me into a fight because there's nothing I can do about it. Only God could do that. And then when Elisha does what Elisha does, then you think back to this, 
And you're like, oh, that's the claim that's being made here is that Elisha actually does have access to God's power or something like that. So Elisha's response then, it uh, it doesn't seem like Elisha is with the king. It seems like Elisha sort of hears mm-hmm. tell and then sends a messenger. Mm-hmm. Like, why'd you rip your clothes? Like, send that guy to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. What do you make of Elisha's response right there? You know, it didn't really occur to me until you just reread it to me, even though I've read it and you've already read it to me, that what Elisha is trying to prove is that there's a prophet in yeah. Israel. Like the egos in this story are so crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like Elisha doesn't say like, don't worry, I got yeah. this. Oh, you're right. Like, yeah. Send him to me. We can take yeah. care of it. But or like I can show him the power of God or like anything like that. He's just like, I shall show him there is a prophet in <laughs> Israel and it's yeah. me. Like, I don't know. This just feels like so much. I had not read Elisha that way, but now I can read him in no other way. I hadn't read him that way before either. I just sort of had seen him yeah. as, um, you know, again, he's he's a little bit outside. Well, yeah, as you're saying, like, it's not like he's in the in the company of the king as this is yeah. happening. But he does want to help, but I think he wants to help for his own reasons, not because he actually wants to help the king. I read that then he'll know. I mean, actually Naaman does know that there's a prophet in Israel because that's the girl told him, but functionally he just he probably may, forgot. he may have forgotten, yeah. but <laughs> that detail has gotten lost. I read Elisha when he says, then he'll know as actually really what he's saying is then you'll know king, like you ought mm. to know better. How could you possibly forget that I, that I'm out here the kings and Elisha and Elijah, as you know, have a very tensive relationship. And the kings would probably mostly just assume that there weren't a prophet in Israel because they can be kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. here, like it actually would be useful to remember that. And the king has either forgotten it or he has not, not chosen to access that route. Yeah. I also think, I don't know, I just think it's interesting now that we talk so much about clothes that like this this passage really does keep bringing up clothes, right? Like he rips your clothes. Like, why'd you do that? Don't rip it your does. clothes. Like that's a ridiculous thing to do. You know, I guess clothes. Yeah. Ripping clothes is a sign of distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ripping clothes is a sign of distress. And I'm thinking now also about clothing in general as like an indicator of yeah. status and sort of social yeah. role which I wouldn't necessarily have raised up. I don't think that's explicitly in any way why clothing comes up a lot in this story. It's just because we keep talking about the way that trying to move through traditional social structures and power systems is just taking them the wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just taking them off the path. Like they just have to keep circling back to it. Um, It made me think about that. All right. So let's see what happens when Naaman shows up in verse nine. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who said, go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. But Naaman went away in anger. He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Naaman's servants came up to him and spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was wash and become clean. 
So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. He returned to the man of God with all his attendants. He came and stood before Elisha, saying, Now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. So interesting. So, the, I mean, one of the interesting things in this text is, I mean, really is a very unexpected way for there to be a miracle. Like, I'm, I'm a little bit with Naaman. Like, I sort of expect Elisha to come out, pronounce <laughs> something, yeah. wave his hands or do something. He doesn't even come to the door. He just sends his guy to the door and tells Naaman to go wash in the river. How do you, like, what, why, what is Elisha doing? I mean, I don't know if Elisha is doing this on purpose, but I feel like what, what this, like, interaction, this, the way this plays out is doing is really, like, turning on its head a lot of assumptions about what power and powerful acts look like. Mm. I mean, Elisha is healing him, but by not going to the door and like looking him in the eye, it seems a little dismissive. Like it seems like I am not honoring you as a very esteemed guest. I mean, he has so many horses and chariots. (laughs) You know, this is an important person. And so Elisha is not honoring that in any, you know, he's not honoring that in the way that you would expect it to be honored, but he is healing him. So it's not that he doesn't, you know, I don't want to say care for him because that sounds a little bit weird, but in a way he really is honoring him, but not his status. Yeah. I think that's really important, Amy. Well, then what, how do you think about the fact that like the ritual that is prescribed really doesn't sound much like a ritual. Yeah. It just sounds like go, like go wash yourself in the river. Right. <laughs> like basically like you just right. need to take like a bath. Maybe you have a skin disease because you've never taken a bath. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a, I, I think there's a couple of things going on. The first one, I think what you're saying is really important that, you know, we've gotten into this thing where the slave girl said something fairly simple and it's gotten really complicated and all these official ways and letters and gifts and money and clothes and Elisha disrupts all of that mm-hmm. by refusing to even come to the door. He doesn't see it. He doesn't engage it. He doesn't talk about it. He mm-hmm. doesn't accept the gift. He doesn't do anything. And so we've disrupted the sort of official channels, and we're going to come at it a different way. I also think it's important that the miracle is not very miracle Mm-hmm. We talk every once in a while on the podcast. The one I keep coming back to is the story of the manna in the wilderness where Mm -hmm. the people see the miracle and they're like, what's that? You know, like, it's like the miracle is pretty low key. It's really amazing, but it's not like showy. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is one of those. It's not, Mm -hmm. the point of the miracle is not for the miracle to be flashy and cool. It's almost so subtle that you don't recognize the miracle-ness of it. But in the end, it actually works. What I think is so interesting is like Naaman has very clearly got expectations about what a miracle mm-hmm. should look like. Yes, he does. And this is not what he thinks. This is not what he had in mind. Do you think that's part of what Elisha is doing is trying to like upset the expectation of what he ought to do? I mean, I again, like it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to 
try to guess what Elisha is like trying to do, but I think that's what he does. That's the effect that it has. I think that's the effect that it has that, you know, we, we come to associate or maybe Naaman has come to associate miracles so closely with particular words or movements or, you know, things like that, that as many times as we can say, it's not the movement that's making it happen. It's not the word. It's, you know, that you have whatever, become a vessel for some divine power, however you want to talk about it. But people get so, become so compelled by the form of it. Yes. That they think they, they're only looking at the form now. And so in the absence of the form, it feels like it, it just feels like nothing happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a, this is a, a, a really interesting, I don't know, critique to, Think about how ritual life functions in our in our world now, and in, you know, and in the world yeah. then. But how we become so attached to the form of it when the form was only ever a container for something yeah. else. That's really lovely, Amy. And when you think about the like everything in this text, once it's gotten to name and has had a proper form, like there's a certain way things are done socially and politically. Mm-hmm. And here we add to that, there's a certain way things are done ritually, or at least mm-hmm. that's. That's the assumption, and it turns out that that's not the case. Now he's offended, and he said, mm-hmm. "Why don't we've got better rivers in Damascus? <laughs> so why don't I just go wash in those?" So it's not exactly like he is. I think offended that the ritual doesn't look like the ritual he is expecting. He also seems to be offended by the very notion of the River Jordan being a place that he should bathe. Mm. What do you make of that? I think, I, I guess I take that as just an assumption that, yeah, that like power or miracles or I don't know the right word to use. I keep wanting to say magic, but I know that has a lot of baggage that I don't really mean to import. That it only happens in certain ways and in certain places. And for him, it's not in the rivers of Damascus either. But it's like, if I feel like he reads this as just go take a bath. And if you're saying go take a bath, then there's no reason I needed to come travel to Uh, Israel and go mm. bathe in your dumb river. I didn't (laughs) see it necessarily as an insult of the land of Israel. Although I think the land of Israel is of interest to the author. So yeah. If you see that, I would like to hear more about, I would like you to draw that out. That's interesting because I read it as very much sort of an ethnic bias that Mm. he thinks that Arameans are superior. He's already lowered himself by coming to ask for help. He doesn't get help from the king. So now he's coming to some rando prophet. Mm -hmm. And then the instruction is what you really need are the waters of Israel. And I... I mean, I read that as a, his response there is an ethnic bias. Like, how could I possibly get clean in the waters of Israel? Mm. Because Israel is no Aram. And so I read that as sort of a barrier for him, uh, for his own healing, is this the assumption that his culture, his land, his geography is superior to the place where he currently is. And it almost disrupts the whole thing for him. That's so interesting. I don't think you're wrong. I think you're right. But it's so interesting to see how that belief can hang together with 
this willingness to engage with the king of Israel and willingness to go into the land of Israel and willingness to engage with this prophet of Israel and willingness to, Hmm. I mean, at least indirectly engage with the God of Israel while still also holding that belief in the superiority of one's own, one's own. Yeah. That's how you say that. Yeah. You know, land or people or, or whatever. Although as I'm saying it, I'm like, of course we do this all the time. Like this is, how systemic prejudice works right. in America also. Right. <laughs> so why am I surprised? Great. Thank you for letting me. Thanks for yeah. coming to my TED Talk. I've talked myself <laughs> through that little yeah. issue. I do wonder if these things are connected to with uh, like you stick within the official channels because you know how to function within the official channels. And so there's a certain dignity yeah. to going yes. to the king of right. some other place, right. to going to an official prophet maybe. But now when the prophet doesn't come to the door and then tells you to go, like, actually get in touch with the go land. Go get in the, the river. Yeah. Like Now yeah. it's just too much. It's too much. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So it is the servants who save the day. Again. Again. And so we this started with a, a servant girl, slave girl, and it's going to come back around here. And what they say is, if he told you to do something hard, you would have done that. And all he said was, wash and become clean. And so Naaman went down and did just as he said. What do you make of their intervention? I mean, I think I'm interested both in the sort of like the nature of their intervention and also that it is the servants who have to intervene again. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the fact that it's the servants who have to intervene again, I just... I see that the way that they approach it as, again, like really trying to break down this ego barrier a little bit um, and say like, you don't, it doesn't have to be the most special and difficult and like attention getting thing that you do, you know, like you don't have to, if he asked you to do something that was really special and remarkable, you would have done it. So I don't know. I see that as as a a response to the desire to see yourself as special and remarkable and the kind of healing that you need is special and remarkable. And what he's asked you to do feels really mundane. And so you don't want to do it. Naaman's a four on the Enneagram, just like me. (laughs) 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 You don't have a special ritual for me. I'm the most special person that ever lived. Yeah, yeah, he might be a four. I don't know. He's got, but he's not a healthy four. You're a very healthy (laughs) four, Bobby. I like it. I like it. It's just so interesting to me that, like, you know, if you bracket out the part between the servants, this is a really simple story, right? Naaman has a skin disease. Servant girl says, Why don't you go see Elisha? Go to see Elisha. He says, Bathe in the river. You bathe in the river. You're, you're healed. Like it is so straightforward. Yeah. And it is when the story gets away from the servants and it gets into the official channel, it creates this whole thing that then didn't have, it did not have to be so complicated. It should not have been so complicated. They have made it so much more complicated by taking it through these like realms of human power and ego that did not have to be involved at all. Exactly right. So after Naaman bathes and is made clean, he comes back and says, now I know for certain there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. I got to say, I did not just reading this story fully see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. Like that's a big conclusion. Yeah. Yes, it is. And you know, when I first read it, 
I read it too fast. And so I read it as there is no God other than the God of Israel. Ah. Because we've seen that confession before, you know, from time to time come from the lips of foreigners. And, you know, that's always exciting. But that's not what it says. It says, I know there is no God except in In Israel. Israel. Yeah, that seems important. That seems important. And I'm wondering, or I'm guessing, or I don't know, I'm connecting that to your comment that the, the fact that there's something about the land, the land here, like the holiness yeah. of the land of Israel and the idea of God's you know, presence or activity yeah. in that land. Even though this text started with the idea that God is paying attention to other things and yeah. is granting victories to other peoples too, there is some kind of, there's some kind of holiness in this land that is not in the rivers of Damascus. I love that, Amy, because what it's doing in my mind now is to say, like, this God is not just some sort of spiritual presence, but this God is, like, earthy and connected to the culture, connected to the place, connected to the people, connected to the ethnicity. Like, it is, you got to get down in the world in order to really, truly experience this God. And so, whereas Naaman seems perfectly happy to have been a Syrian in, in Syria mm-hmm. with the God of Israel doing whatever the God does sort of spiritually, he seems to be having a real hard time with the sort of earthiness and connectedness to the specific place and people. And so I, I don't quite know where that goes, but the idea that accessing God involves particular places and particular people and particular like essences like you got to get you got to get down in the in the muck a little bit in the water in order to experience god does it strike you as anything that elisha doesn't even mention god to the man or invoke god in any way and when he said you know when he said i'll show him he's what he said was i'll show him there's a prophet in israel and didn't mention mm-hmm. god then either mm-hmm. so so Naaman has made this whole connection all on his own. Is that like it's, self, it's sort of self-evident? I, I guess. So the king has just said a minute ago, nobody could do this except for God. And right. so now that it has happened, I think the only conclusion that you can come to, if, if you take the king at, you know, if, if you assume that the king has said something that seems true, then the only conclusion can be, that it was God who did this. I think that's right. If you take the King's statement as a key to unlock the rest of the story. Yeah. I think you also just looking at the shot, like looking at the simple meaning of the text could take it as the King doesn't believe any human can do this, that this is a power reserved to God, but look, the prophet of Israel can do it. Yeah. I don't know that's a very I don't know that we want to go in that direction theologically because it's pretty weird. But I'm not sure how I feel about taking the king's statement as a yeah, an interpretive key. That's interesting because I don't know how to read the text without taking the, the king's statement as a key. <laughs> I just I think like, like that's sort of like when you see this, you know that there's God and I can, I don't know how to do that because I'm not God. And so yeah. then I think like, okay, when you see that, you know that there is God. And also, you know, that Elisha is the prophet of God. Yeah. 
I guess I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to read this story. Like, I don't know how did Elisha affect this healing? Like, how, how did this, because it doesn't, it, do, it doesn't tell us anything. Yeah. You know, maybe I feel like Naaman, like, what the heck kind of ritual was that? What do you mean dip in the Jordan seven times? Yeah. Like, could he have gone to dip in the Jordan seven times without talking without, to Elisha first Elisha. and it like, would have worked? Does the Jordan just convey healing properties Right. Is the magic just in the Jordan and he just needed to know what to do? Or did Elisha do something to cause that to happen? Or, or what? It is a mystery. I mean, I think the fact that Elisha doesn't even come to the door lends itself to the idea that the Jordan has healing properties of its own accord. And so what Elisha mm-hmm. has offered is the knowledge that one needs to access the healing that's already there. Not that he has sort of done something that made it different. If you read it that way, which I think is a really interesting way to read it, then healing is available in Israel, yeah, in the Jordan. And Elisha's talent as a prophet is he understands that and knows how to access what's already there but he himself in this case anyway is not actually conveying that healing i really like that i don't quite know where to go with it but i i really like that as a way of it's an interesting idea to chew on i'm not totally sure where to go with it either nor am i sure that this is what the story is supposed to say I mean, yeah. if there is a supposed to say. But, I know. When, um, says, when is the Bible more interesting than that's supposed to say? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, what could this text offer us? That's how I always try yeah, to Yeah, so that's a good question. What, what is in this text offer? that's available to us? Well, let me just ask you that question, Amy, since I think we're coming to the end of our episode here. What is available in this text for us and for the living of our lives in our communities today? You know, it has me thinking about the human proclivity or at least my proclivity to to want interactions with god to look a certain way yeah. like a certain big and strange way yeah. <laughs> like a you know like very markedly not mundane way and the different ways that naaman wants that in this story you know some of it is through human means, like he doesn't want to just go find this random dude in Israel. Like he, yeah. he has to elevate this somehow. Yeah. And, and there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to like elevate something to bring dignity to it. But, you know, as we were saying before, it got to the point where, you know, if religion is pointing at some truth, eventually we all just start staring at the hand that's mm. pointing and making sure that we're buttressing that and we sort of forget what it is we're looking at. I, I mean, I think that's a real risk. I think it's a risk that I run in my daily life. I imagine I'm not the only person to sort of confuse our, our attempts to dignify and beautify our ritual with what it is we're actually trying to affect in mm-hmm. the world. But as you were saying, like this, this could be a very simple story about the miraculous healing that is actually available to us all the time and many people know how to access it mm-hmm. and they're not they're not people who have any particularly impressive resume they're just, mm-hmm. you know they're just folks we have to be willing to willing to hear them and take them seriously and and dignify their experiences in the world in the, the way that the social structure systems don't 
But I like ritual so much, Bobby. I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> I love a beautiful ritual, but it is true. You cannot get so distracted by the form of the ritual that you are just rehashing the form and rehashing the form and rehashing the form or the social structure. Like any anything that brings you comfort by going down those tracks over and over and over again, you have to be really careful that you're revisiting what the actual goal is and getting there. Yeah, I really like that. And especially where you ended up just there, because I do think in this text, you get that sense of there is a, like a social ritual. There's a status, mm-hmm. rituals of status and there are rituals of liturgy and those are all getting tied up together. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not exactly a critique of ritual, mm-hmm. but I think where you were pointing this uh, to is that when the ritual gets tied up with the social and the political into like, there is a certain way that things have to be done. That's very controlled by the powers that be, then you lose the significance of the ritual. And to me, this text is very clearly a critique of that idea and encountering healing, encountering God in unexpected ways and unexpected places when there is no ritual involved really. Mm-hmm. or at least not an unexpected one, that, that God is available out in the world in those kinds of ways. And I really appreciate the way you got us into that, which is very much for me kind of a Mercy Church Canvas community kind of reading where the wisdom that's in the story is the wisdom of just regular folks who have no social status. And when it gets to the people who, in theory, societally anyway, are the ones who are supposed to know what's going on. They have no idea what's happening. I really love that reading. And I mean, I, I circle back on this kind of thing all of the time to, you know, to say we just need to be more thoughtful about who we listen to and who we're in community with and whose word we take seriously. I think that is a, is a really powerful message in this text. I'm also toying with this idea that we came to right at the end, and I'm sad that we came to it right at the end because I don't quite know what to do with it. Mm. But the possibility that the healing is already there, like God is already present in the Jordan River, and like that water, because it is God's special place, has healing powers. If you know how, if you know that, and you know how to access it, because I think you end up with something there about God's healing presence is available in the world all the time. It doesn't require a specially endowed person to like wave their hand and mediate God's power into the world. It's already there. Healing is there. Healing is available. Healing is possible in ways that we might be too sophisticated in our own minds to actually realize is, is even possible. And if we would just take that seriously then the sort of religious leaders like the Elishas and, and people like that of the world become inviters into a way of mm-hmm. engaging the world more than conveyors of power. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know. I don't quite know if that touches the ground, but it feels really real to me. I, I love that. I love that. And as you were talking, Bobby, it was making me think, and I'm not well versed in this arena, so I won't say too much, but it makes me think of what little I know about sort of the relationship of indigenous peoples to the mm. land where they live and their sense of holiness in the land and, and their deep understanding of what is in their particular mm. 
land, you yeah. know, and respect for it. And just, I don't know, that that kind of deep knowledge and connection that, that I do not have to the land, mm-hmm. but I think does, can open a door for that kind of, um, I don't know, the kind of access to holiness or, or relationship with holiness through the land that, that fits in with what you're describing. And from Naaman's perspective, it's in somebody else's land mm-hmm. and in somebody else's culture and in somebody else's place. And he has to be willing to trust them to show him that. That seems important too. Yes, although I wonder if if we can imagine a world in which Naaman is, has such a mundane relationship with his own land that it would be even harder for him to imagine, I don't know, to relate to his own land in this way. Okay, now I'm really off-roading. I'm way, <laughs> like way, way off. Off-roading. This was a lot of fun, Bobby. This was, oh, hey, next time we're going to do one of our uh, peripheral prophets we were talking about. We're going to be in the book of Micah, chapters five and six. We did a little Micah this summer in our economic justice yeah. series. We're going to do yeah. a little more Micah next, next time. Come back for some more. That sounds great. All right, Amy. I will see you then. I'll see you then. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the prophet Micah and his call for justice, kindness, and humility. What does the Lord require of you? To keep on digging.